Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Before I get into today's topic, I want to acknowledge that this is episode number 15. And I'm tremendously grateful for each and every one of you who is listening out there. The audience for the show continues to grow. And I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for listening and supporting the podcast. And I'd like to invite you to send me an email at Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at theinvestorspodcast.com, or follow me on Twitter at Sean P. Murray 111. Tell me what you think of the show, what guests you like the most, suggestions for future guests and topics. My goal is to get to know you, and I, I really am interested, and to make the podcast more interactive. Given that we're part of the Investors Podcast Network, I also want to mention that I have a whole team here at the network, and they help me pull together an informative webpage for each episode. You can find it at theinvestorspodcast.com. You'll see a link to The Good Life. It will take you to a page with all the past shows, show notes, transcripts, contact information for guests, and it has my contact information. And finally, if you're getting value out of The Good Life, please leave a review for the show. If you don't know how to do this, there's a simple guide at the website. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I promise I will respond My goal is to keep improving this podcast to bring you the best guests and topics so we can all get a little bit closer to the good life. So now, on with the show. Today's topic is about character and the role it plays in achieving the good life. My guest is Christian Miller, professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University and author of The Character Gap, How Good Are We? Christian explains the three aspects of character, thinking, motivation, and behavioral. He explains why character plays such a big role in relationships, in business, and in our life in general, why we are emotionally uplifted and inspired by stories of people who are examples of good character, why it's important to have role models in our life of people with good character whom we can emulate, why most of us are a mixed bag of virtue and vice, and what that means about how we view our own character and the character of others. And most importantly, he provides tips and techniques we can use to improve our character. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christian as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Christian Miller. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Christian, welcome to The Good Life. It's great to be with you today. Likewise. Well, today our topic is character, and character plays such a major role in our lives. It can guide our decision-making. It can determine the health of our relationships, with whom we form relationships. It can impact our emotional well-being. It can form the foundation of our success in business. And you've written a book about character called The Character Gap, How Good Are We? So I'm delighted you're joining us today to help us shed some light on the subject. So let's start with character. What are we talking about when we talk about character? Sure. So I should say I'm a philosophy professor, so I always like to begin by defining my terms and making sure we're real clear what we mean. I've had conversations where people are talking past each other because they think we're talking about characters in movies or characters in Shakespeare or something like that. And that's really not what I'm focused on. I'm focused on moral character. And moral character has to do with moral fibers, how we're disposed to think, feel, and act when it comes to moral matters. That's the general 
philosophical abstract way to characterize it, but I think it helps to go a little bit more detailed and specific. So character comes in two forms. There's moral virtue, that's the good side of character, and there's moral vice, that's the bad side of character. But in both cases, you see these three components going on. You see character having to do with how we think. An example of a moral virtue would be honesty, and honesty has to do with how we think about the world. Do we believe it's important to tell the truth? Do we believe it's important not to cheat on our taxes, and that kind of thing. Same thing with dishonesty. Dishonesty also has to do with how we think about the world, except that in this case, we might think it's important to cheat, or it's a good idea to take advantage of someone else. So that's the thinking side of character. There's the emotional and motivational side of character. So again, with our examples of honesty, an honest person doesn't just have these thoughts, but also has the appropriate motivation. So they want to tell the truth. They care about not cheating others. They don't want to steal. And then you just do the reverse for dishonesty, and the motivations go in the other direction of wanting to cheat, steal, and lie when you think you can get away with it and not get caught. So there's the thinking component of character, there's the emotional and motivational side, and then there's the third part, which is the behavioral, the outward expression of your character. So our example of honesty, you'd expect an honest person, well, tell the truth. When someone asks, you know, what were you doing last night? The honest person says, I was doing, and then fills in the blank with what really happened. Of course, where we go to the other side with dishonesty, you would expect a pattern of behavior that does not map onto the truth, that shows a lot of lying, shows a lot of cheating, a lot of stealing in their behavior. So to sum it up, there are three components to character, thinking, feeling, and outward behavior. When we think about character, why does it play an outsized role in our life, or why is it so important? Why should we focus on it? I think there are a number of reasons. We could start with just its impact on ourselves. So the character makes a big difference to our own individual lives. And this actually goes in a virtue and a vice direction. So there's good empirical evidence to support the idea that the better character you have, the better your life will go. So these are studies that have been done which correlate measures of good character, like hope and conscientiousness and honesty with things that benefit us, like being in a better mood, being healthier, achieving more in life, have a greater life satisfaction, and more purpose and value. So one reason to answer your question is just that it actually seems to make our life go better if we have good character. And on the flip side, if we have a bad character, it makes our life go worse. Now, I wouldn't want to stop there, though, because that makes it sound like it's all about me. It's all self-interest. It's all egocentric. There are other reasons to care about character, too, beyond just that one. But I think that's an important one. We shouldn't neglect it. Another reason is if you're a religious person, all the major world religions care about character. I think it's important. We go run the gamut from Judaism, Christianity, Islam, to Eastern religions like Confucianism and Hinduism. They say it's important to cultivate a good character, become a good person. Some religions would say, because God designed you that way, to have a good character. That's the person you should become. There's a second reason. I'll give you two more quickly. Uh, third reason is that it's good for society. So if we have a good character, that actually benefits other people around us and the world we live in. So compare a society where the citizens of the society are just 
and especially leaders of the society are just when they're organizing the society. Compare that to a society where the virtue of justice is not widespread. And we can see the difference in what those societies would look like. And then a final reason for why I think character is so important is that we are often emotionally inspired by examples of good character. So the first three reasons I gave you are more philosophy reasons, intellectual reasons, arguments for why we should care about character. But the fourth one I'll give you it kind of taps into a different part of our psychology, which is that emotionally we resonate, we connect, we click with people who exhibit good character. Or when we see someone run into a burning building at great risk to themselves to save a child who's trapped in the building, we can become emotionally inspired. We admire that person, and then we want to become more like them in our own lives, uh, seeing their example. That's an example of a one-time behavior. But then when we study lives, people like Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman or Jesus or Confucius or Gandhi, we can similarly see an emotional resonance with what they're doing. Not that I say I'm like them, but that I want to become more like them because they are doing something that's really special that I may not have in my life, and I want to conform my life better to the life they're living. So if character is essential to living a good life and it helps us become a better person, it helps us live a better life, it helps us create a better society for others to live in, then how do we improve character? And I'm kind of building off of you just mentioned we're uplifted by stories. And it seems like one way that we learn about character is through stories. It might even start with our grandmothers and the wisdom of grandmothers and grandparents and our parents kind of reinforcing this from a very young age that do the right thing. Character matters, integrity. But what is it about stories? And you mentioned it in the book, the power of stories to teach character. So there's a lot packed in there. First, there's just the underlying assumption that we don't have a good character already. Because if we're already virtuous, if we're already great people, then there's not much need to care about improving our character because we're already pretty set. So probably later on in our conversation, we'll get into reasons for thinking that our character does need some improvement. So when we think about how to improve character, I think there are a number of strategies we could adopt. I hope we will have time to get into those too. But the one you're highlighting right off the bat, I think is a really important one, which is the role of exemplars, moral saints, moral heroes, moral role models, which can have an emotional impact on us. And then you're rightly noting, well, how do we encounter those exemplars? Well, we can encounter them in all kinds of different ways, but one very influential way we encounter these exemplars is through stories. I want to say that that's not the only way, though. Hopefully, we have actual people in our lives a neighbor, a friend, a boss, a mentor, a religious leader, whoever, who face-to-face serves as a role model for us and can call us out when we fall short and inspire us to do better. But that's not the only way these, I hope that's true of everyone's life and is essential to everyone's life. But another way these role models can come along is through indirect representation. By that, I mean, maybe they are presented in a book or in a movie, piece of poetry, a play or whatever, whereby we can see their lives depicted that way. We're not coming face to face with them. So this can take a variety of different forms. So these could be fictional role models or exemplars. They don't have to be real people. 
Or they can be, of course, real people as well. So example of a fictional role model would be someone like, one of my favorite examples is the priest in Les Miserables, who forgives Jean Valjean as opposed to turning him into the authorities, which would have meant he would go back to prison for the rest of his life. He powerfully exhibits the virtue of forgiveness in that story in a way which grips me and I think has gripped many readers for years. But then there are also examples in stories which are real stories. So, you know, we could read a, a biography of Lincoln or of Harriet Tubman and see how they live their lives, learn facts about their lives. But those facts could trigger in us an emotional response, which I was touching on a little bit, but now I can say more about. That emotional response can come in two forms, come in the form of first, the emotion of admiration. I can admire what Lincoln did in telling the truth. I can admire what Tubman did in exhibiting courage. And then secondly, it's not just admiration at a distance. I admire all kinds of things. I don't have much of an impact on my life. I admire what the Olympic bobsledding team did. But it's a second emotional response, which is elevation or inspiration, where I'm moved not just by at a distance, but I'm moved personally to try to change my life so that it better conforms to that person's life. Not in every respect, but in the respects that really matter when it comes to character. So I'm not moved to become the president of the United States when I read about Lincoln's life, but I might be emotionally moved to become more honest when I read about those specific details of his life. So that's a little bit more, I think, about how storytelling and reading about exemplars of character can have a character impact in our own lives. Well, the title of your book is The Character Gap, and the subtitle is How Good Are We? So what is that gap and how good are we? <laughs> what I do in the book is I set it up in the three parts. My first part is defining our terms, what is character and why it's important, which we've already been talking about. The third part is how can we improve our character? So I kind of come with this with an open mind, not making any prejudgments about how good or bad we are. And I can't really get my head around an answer just by sitting here in the armchair as a philosopher trying to think how good are people in general. But what I do in my research on this is I go and you know, consult what psychologists have been doing for the last 50 years, which is running lots and lots of carefully controlled experiments where they put participants into a morally relevant situation where they have an opportunity to lie or cheat or steal or help or harm and see what happens. How do participants do? Not just one example. That's not so interesting. That's why drawing inferences from the media about how one person behaves is not so reliable. We're looking at studies where dozens or ideally hundreds of people were put into this situation. How did the majority of them behave? So having looked at these studies for many years, I could aggregate them together. Here's the bottom line. On my way of interpreting the results, the message is most of us, and I'll say why most of us, not all of us, but most of us have a character which is a mixed bag, which has some positive sides to our character, but not enough positivity to be virtuous, side by side with some negative sides to our character, but not neg enough negativity to be vicious. So we have what I call a mixed character or mixed traits. You might say, this is encouraging because we're not as bad as we could be. And if you read a lot of the news, you might get really depressed. But no, no, actually, we have a mixed character. We don't have a vicious character. 
On the other hand, if you're a really positive person, you might take this in a negative way and say, well, actually, most of us are not virtuous people. We fall short of the kind of person we should be. Most of us are not honest or compassionate or just. Now, I'll end by saying first that we can get into the studies if you like, and I can use some concrete examples, maybe to make it less abstract. But secondly, let me say why I say most people, because I think it's a bell curve here. I think most of us are in this murky middle ground, but as a bell curve, there are going to be outliers. And so on one end of the curve, you are going to see virtuous people. Not many, but some virtuous people. And you can pick your favorite example, like Lincoln for honesty or Tubman for courage. And then on the other side of the curve, you're going to see some vicious people. Pick your favorite example here. You can pick your Hitlers or your Stalins. But I think most of us are not, in general, like those exemplars of the virtue or the vice. On the cover of your book, you've got Gandhi on one side and Hitler on the other. And there's not quite a bell curve, but that's why I picture when I see it. And most of us in the middle somewhere. One thing that stood out in reading the book, and I love the book, by the way, it's a great reflection on character. I encourage everyone to read it. You present a fairly high bar for character. You already mentioned a couple. I mean, one is that a good person takes on a good action, but they do it for the right reasons. You have to have in your heart the right reason, and you do it in a way that's appropriate for that circumstance. Also, you mentioned that to have high character, you have to exhibit that character reliably across lots of different actions. You can't just be honest with your friends. You can't just be honest with your family. An honest person goes out into the world and is honest with strangers. And you also mentioned that to be a good person, you must be good when people aren't looking. So it's not just that you're good to win over the friends of others, to put on a show that you have a good character so you can gain all the benefits of having a good character. And then when you have an opportunity to cheat in some way and sort of gain an advantage on others by taking advantage of that good reputation, you can't do that and have a good character. So that's a fairly high bar. And I just have to mention a story from Plato because we've had a few guests on recently talking about the great works of Western civilization and 1,000 books to read before you die. James Mustich talked about that. And Scott Hambrick recently talked about the great works. And you bring up in your book a very famous story from Plato's Republic called The Ring of Gyges. So this high bar of character is something that philosophers and writers have been talking about for years and thinking about. And this goes all the way back to Plato. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that story and what it tells us about character. First of all, about the high bar and then about Plato. You're right that I set the bar very high. I think we would want to distinguish between perfect virtue and some virtue. If it's a matter of being a perfectly virtuous person, that person will always have virtuous motivation and always think in the right way, always act appropriately, whether others are looking or not, cross-situationally, no matter what the situation. Now, if that's the criteria, that's very defeating, because none of us are ever going to meet those criteria. And in fact, when you start thinking that way, you may just lose motivation to improve in the first place. So I would not really want to stress that as the goal we should be aiming for. What I think is more helpful is just making slow, gradual progress in getting better in our character. 
because it's not just virtue is not all or nothing. Either you have it or you don't. It's you can be weakly virtuous, you can be moderately virtuous, you can be strongly virtuous, and then you know maybe only Jesus or saints or whatever ever gets to that perfect virtue. I just want to encourage my own life and in other people's lives trying to move the needle slowly towards virtue and away from vice. Having said that, there's this famous idea that our true character is revealed when no one's looking. Because even a vicious person will often mask virtue when around others because it's, well, it's in his or her self-interest. You don't want to be like flagrantly cheating in public because soon enough, no one's going to trust you. If it's financial cheating, you get arrested. Penalties are stiff. So even a dishonest person will also often, in a personal context, exhibit a lot of the same behavior as an honest person. What really counts is what's in a person's heart underlying the behavior. Where is their heart really? To see that in behavior, you want to see how they act when no one's looking. What do they do on the internet, for example, when no one else is around? How do they perform on a test when they have an opportunity to cheat and get away with this and improve their score? Those are the kind of real, really insightful measures of true character. Now, how does Plato figure into all this? Plato's Republic is arguably the greatest work of Western philosophy. It's a long book featuring a dialogue between Socrates and a number of other conversation partners, in particular, his brothers, Glaucon and Amantus. In book two of the Republic, they're having this discussion between Socrates and Glaucon and Adamantus, his brothers, about this very issue of, are people good in general or not? And how can we tell? And so one of the brothers, Glaucon, brings up this example of the ring of Gyges. And the example goes like this. Suppose you're, in this example, it's a shepherd who's out in the fields, and one day he finds this ring, puts the ring on, he turns the ring in a certain direction, and it makes him invisible. And so he tests it out, completely reliable. No one can see him when he turns the ring a certain direction. So what does he do? He can do anything. He has lots of opportunities, lots of options in front of him. But in the story from Glaucon, the shepherd takes advantage of the ring to kill the king of the land, marry the queen, and basically rule over, gain power, wealth, and pleasure. So not a very flattering picture of character at all indicating in this example that, as a matter of fact, most of us are, don't really care about virtue, because if we did care about virtue, the ring wouldn't matter to our behavior. We would still do the right thing. But Glaucon's betting on if most of us found a ring like this, we would do something similar to the shepherd in our own time and place, whatever that would look like, whoever that person you fantasize about, whatever that money you've always wanted to have, whatever that power that you've never had in your life, now you have a chance to get it. It's yours for the taking, and we would grab for it. So that's meant to be an empirical prediction about how we would behave in this imaginary situation, which is supposed to be accurate as a reflection of our true nature, of our true underlying heart. I'd like to bring up an example of, in the modern world, where this plays out, this story from ancient Greece. It's something that we continually think about, and there's a lot of value investors that listen to this podcast. And one of the exemplars that we often look to in the value investing community is Warren Buffett. And Warren has said 
that when making a decision, he doesn't want to be anywhere near the sort of gray area of whether something is morally correct or not. If you think in terms of a spectrum, kind of like you do in the book, of you can start to make decisions and get a little bit closer to something that may be morally compromised or potentially illegal. And he says he always wants to make a decision that's so far away from that line that it's never a question. If you have to question where you are in the line, you are already in the wrong spot. You know what the right answer is. And he has another little sort of mind trick that he uses, which is imagine you make the decision and the following week, the decision is in the New York Times on the front page written by a journalist who is not necessarily predisposed to your position. And your family, your wife, your kids, your community is going to read that article. And I've found that little just kind of dialogue with myself when I'm making a decision and I feel like, okay, is this decision getting near some kind of moral line? I find that that little dialogue has actually helped me many times to kind of set myself right and say, okay, Sean, think about it in that perspective. And it just sort of clears my head and says, okay, I don't want to go down that road. That's really helpful advice. I would endorse that recommendation as well. This connects to two things. One, it nicely connects to our discussion of the Ring of Gyges and what your heart is really like. So if you have an opportunity to do something, have a visibility ring, and no one else would see you do, you could apply this test and say, okay, well, what if it were revealed a week later in the New York Times? What would be the assessment of my action? So you might have an opportunity to cheat on that test and get a better grade, something I think about a lot because I'm a professor and I've got students who always think about how to prevent them from cheating. So a student has an opportunity to cheat on a test and get a better grade. Well, pause for a moment and think about a week later, all your peers at the university and your professor find out about this. What would you do? How would you react? And you come quickly to the realization, no, this is wrong. This would be terrible. So this is a really helpful test we could employ. I don't think it's foolproof. Some people are going to say, well, I don't care what others would say. If it helps me and I benefit, too bad. It's all about me. So the person who's so self-focused, so egotistical, they may not care what others have to say. But fortunately, most of us are not like that. I hope not. And so I think it's a very useful criteria to employ. Buffett has another quote or just kind of rule, I guess I would say, when he looks to hire people. And I think it's revealing of character. And what he says is when you're looking to hire someone, you look for three qualities, integrity, intelligence, and energy. And if you don't have the first, the other two will kill you. You think about that, it's true. If you hire somebody without integrity, you really want them to be dumb and lazy. That's his quote. Because <laughs> uh, if you, you don't have the integrity and you have all that intelligence and energy, they could wreck a lot of havoc. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in that that speaks to what you're talking about, which is the importance of character that is really supreme when it comes to looking at who you want to surround yourself with, who you want on your team, the kind of people you want to go into battle with, so to speak, in business or in life. You want people with those three qualities and of the three, integrity is the most important. Yeah, I think that's very wise and, and also very, very true. My reaction to that is, suppose we grant that. 
I'm the last person who would probably object to that since I wrote a book on character. And I think character is extremely important. My follow-up question would be, well, how do we measure it? How do we assess it? Right? So, of course, if I was hiring someone, I would want the person, first and foremost, to be a person of integrity. But how am I going to be able to assess from the applicant pool who rises to the top there? Similarly, when it's a matter of my friends, I want them all to be a people of integrity. How do I tell whether they have that virtue or not? But my children, I have three young children. I'm trying to raise them to be people of good character. How do I know whether they're moving the needle in that direction or not? So assessment becomes a very tricky issue because as we've been talking about this entire interview, it's not just external. You can't just look at their external behavior and read off from that what their genuine character is like. It's a matter of ultimately of underlying motivation and thinking, how you're in your heart disposed to be as a person, which is your true character. So now that's not to say that behavior doesn't matter. Of course, behavior is a sign of your true character. And you can, over time, the better you know someone, the more you can pick up on their heart from their manifest behavior. It is really hard to mask things in your heart in the long run when you're around people continually. But when it comes to short, quick decisions that you have to make about hiring someone or not, or firing someone or not, then it becomes a lot trickier to identify those people whose character bubbles to the top or rises to the top from a larger group of people. And that's probably a whole nother podcast to figure out. And I'm not sure there's any great answers for figuring out, determining, assessing the character of someone or the level of integrity. I think the best way, as you mentioned, is just to spend time with that person. And whatever it is about human interaction, over time, we seem to get a sense of someone's character, especially if we see them in challenging situations, in making tough choices with trade-offs, making choices when there's incentives that would benefit that person over the expense of other people. That's, where I think, where true character reveals itself. You definitely don't get that from an interview. You do get that from what's called a reputation. I mean, that's one form of information or a signal that comes at you. And Buffett has another famous quote, which is you can, it takes a whole career to build a reputation, but you can lose it in 15 minutes by making one bad decision. And that gets to your whole point about reliability. To have character, you have to be reliable over time. You can't just be honest 95% of the time or have a good character 95% of the time. You've got to be consistent. And that's not easy to do. No, it's not. And we're going to hold ourselves to that standard. We're never going to meet it. So I think we have to bring in another character trait, which we haven't talked much about, which is forgiveness. So if, if we're going to hold our employees or our spouses or our friends to the standard of complete reliability, they're not going to meet that standard. So we're going to beat up on them. We're going to beat up on ourselves. And it's going to potentially spiral in a negative direction. But one really important virtue that I really want to commend for further thought and reflection is the virtue of forgiveness, where you recognize, okay, no one's perfect. People are going to slip up. You hope that the person who's made the mistake is genuinely repentant and is taking steps to try and address why he or she did this action. But at some point, you're willing to say, okay, you acknowledge the wrongdoing. You're taking steps to address it. And there's no point in me holding this against you forever. I'm willing to forgive you and move on from the situation. And that itself is a virtue. It's a, it has cognitive components. It has a motivational component. It has a behavioral component, the virtue of forgiveness. 
And it's also something I think that we need to cultivate in our lives, especially in acknowledgement of the fact that most people are not virtuous. We're probably going to need to exhibit forgiveness pretty often. Yeah. And probably forgiving ourselves at times too, because we have to live with our own character. I actually find that a very motivating factor for virtue and character is just to remind myself that you know what's in your heart. If you really want to look at yourself honestly, a lot of people don't, but you have to live with your character and sometimes you have to forgive yourself because we're not perfect. So interestingly, some people are the best judges of their own character, but not everyone is. That's true. As you just noticed, often people tell themselves fabricated stories or rationalize things or deceive themselves from having to confront the truth. And it may be someone else, a friend, a family member, a therapist, a religious leader, or someone who actually can get a better insight into that person's character than he or she can. Having said that, the goal, of course, is to move away from a lot of those blinders and to acknowledge what we are in fact like, even if we don't like what we see, so that from there we can work on the negative parts, forgive ourselves where we slip up, haven't made enough progress, but work on those negative parts so that the virtuous parts are strengthened and the vicious parts go away. Let's talk about improving character now. We did touch on it a little bit about storytelling, but you go into in detail in the book different strategies for improving character. So what else can we do to improve character? At the end of the book, I have three chapters. One chapter talks about strategies which I don't think are very promising, so I'll set them to one side. The next chapter talks about strategies which I do think are promising, and I'll expand on that in a minute. And the last chapter goes into a more religious perspective for those who are religious and want to think about how their religious beliefs might intersect with character improvements. So on the second to last chapter, strategies for improving character. The first one we have touched on a fair amount, which is trying to find role models of good character in one's life, whether that's through stories or whether it's through an actual concrete person who can exemplify and kind of disciple us and and teach us and role model it for us. So we talked about that one a fair amount. Let me mention two others. And these others are not competitors. It's not like you have to make an either or. I think it's whatever is going to happen with character improvement, it's going to have to be messy, multifaceted, take a number of different forms. So a second idea is to have moral reminders in our lives. Because often we can be led astray and our focus gets onto things that it shouldn't be focused on. We can tend to focus too much on ourselves and getting pleasure for ourselves or power or money or whatever the case might be and lose a broader moral perspective. And what moral reminders can do very helpfully, well, is to get our focus back where it needs to be. These can include things like starting your day off with a a reading that talks about values and what's important in life. It can be getting text messages throughout the day on your phone that remind you of what really matters. It could be even take the form of things like body art or messages that you have in your environment, up on the wall, in your office. So these more reminders have been found in studies to make a big difference in subsequent moral behavior. So to give you one quick illustration, I'll get on to the third strategy. In a study involving an opportunity to cheat or not cheat on a test where you would be paid more money the more correct answers you got. And when you had an opportunity to cheat, you could cheat and not get 
detected at all for your cheating. If we just ran a study like that, people tended to cheat a lot more than their actual performance warranted. So they would say, got 14 out of 20 correct, when in fact, they only got 7 out of 20 correct. But when a moral reminder was introduced, like signing an honor code, when these are students at a university which had an honor code, when they first signed an honor code for their school, which is a moral reminder, then the cheating disappeared. And their performance was accurately reflecting how they really did on the test. That's the second strategy. The third strategy I'll mention briefly also is greater self-awareness and self-understanding. This is what I called getting the word out. Why do I call it that? Because by reading more about the psychology research, reading about some of the studies, reading about the new discoveries that are being made about who we are and how we're doing, we can gain a deeper understanding of how our character actually is put together. And so getting the word out, I'm trying to get the word out about these results to a larger audience and thereby learning from it. So to make that less abstract, in a study where people were instructed first about the bystander effect, the bystander effect being how in a group context, we tend to not help if others are not helping. When people are educated about that, learn about this effect, which is well known in the psychology research, and then subsequently are in an emergency when others are not helping, they are much more likely to help than would a control group who never learned about the research. So being aware of these parts of our minds, like we've got bystander effects and other things like this, can help us in the future be more on guard and behave better when the situation arises. So to sum up, I go through three strategies. First is more role models. The second is more reminders. The third is getting the word out and learning more about our own psychology. Just a couple thoughts on those strategies. The moral reminders, what comes to mind is one of my favorite writers is Montaigne. And he very famously in his study, around the age of 38, he holed himself up in a tower to just write and reflect and think. And what he did was he put all these inscriptions around on the rafters and on his walls of somewhat, I don't know if they're all moral reminders, but they're sort of famous aphorisms and quotes that helped guide his life. And he writes about that in his essays. And that influenced me. You know, another strategy that I use is a journal. And I try to write down quotes that speak to my heart that will remind me to take good actions. And I find that that's, I'm not in my tower in the uh, Bordeaux region of France in the 14th century like he was, but that's my way of doing that. And another thing that I took away from your book, just kind of on your third point there about understanding some of these effects, like the bystander effect, is that if you are going to be injured or something's going to happen to you, it's much better if only one person sees you than the full crowd. You know, And so I don't know if that's ever going to come up in my life, but if it has got me thinking about if I see someone, say, injured, the first thing I usually do is see, well, who else is going to help that person? And I guess there's a part of me that sort of hopes that other people are going to get there first and that will relieve me of that duty. I find that those are real strategies that are helpful and can help us all improve our character. You do mention that having good character is almost like, you might want to think of it as being a major league baseball player or a concert pianist where it requires 
practice, practice, practice every day. You need to devote a certain amount of energy to it if you want to improve. You can't just hope that it's going to improve over time without the same kind of effort it requires to reach those levels in other professions. Yeah, that's very good. Real quick on the first couple of points, you can start your day by having a designated reading. You can also end your day by having a journal. I love that idea. Start your day with a good orientation. And then when the day is over, look back over the day and pick out the things that were really important about the day. You're also right about the group context, where what often happens is if no one else is doing anything to intervene in an emergency, we're held back because maybe those other people have a different read on the situation than we do. Maybe they see something going on that I'm missing. And so here, fear of embarrassment kicks in. And so if I suddenly run out and help this person, and it wasn't actually an emergency where the person needed help, I might look silly. I might look like a fool in front of this crowd. So it's actually underlying story is the fear of embarrassment is what's often keeping you back from intervening. And we need to overcome that. If this really is an emergency, we need to overcome our fear of embarrassment to do the right thing. Now, about the main point that you raised, you're absolutely right to stress that character change is not an overnight matter. I wish it was. I, mean, I wish I could just snap my fingers and make myself a better person. And same thing with my kids sometimes when it comes to their patients or whatnot. It's like give them a magic pill or whatever it was that could make this move along more quickly. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And I'm not the first one to notice that, of course, and make that comment. Aristotle famously said thousands of years ago that good character development is a matter of habituation, it's a matter of practice, it's a matter of routine, it's a matter of trial and error also, that there's no linear progression here, that every day we're going to get better and better. It's a slow, gradual process full of many setbacks where we can improve one day, we might have a setback the next day, we can improve the third day after that. This is frustrating in one sense because we're so eager to make quick progress and get quick fixes. On the other hand, it shouldn't surprise us because, as you nicely noted, character traits are analogous to other skills in life. And I think this is a helpful perspective to have to give us patience about the process of character formation. We can't become a major league baseball pitcher in a matter of a week or a month or a year. It takes years and years to practice to get to that level. Same thing with a chess master. You're not born a chess master. You can't become a chess master quickly or overnight. You're going to lose a lot of games. You have a lot of setbacks. You have a lot of disappointments. The hope is eventually you can make gradual progress and get to at least, if not a chess master, get further down the road to the destination you want to achieve. And that's, I think, a really helpful perspective. Think of character improvement by analogy with any kind of area of expertise or training or developments, which takes a long period of time. All this reminds me of Benjamin Franklin's biography. You mentioned stories being inspiring and uplifting, especially when we read about people that are virtuous and have good character. And I'm, it's not to mention that Benjamin Franklin had a perfect character. When you read the biography, you see a very complete person with a lot of flaws. But what he did do was write in his journal every day, listing out a number of virtues and rated himself on those virtues and actively tried to improve every day. It's never worked for me. I've not tried that, but there may be ways I can do that. Maybe not exactly like Benjamin Franklin, but what do you think of the Franklin technique? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of virtues. I don't know what his list looked like. 
plus on a widely used list in positive psychology. And they have 24 virtues. They call them character strengths. So that would take a lot of work to assess myself on each one of those. And I think that could be a little bit discouraging too. Did I devote enough minutes to integrity? How was my honesty today? What did my temperance look like? What did my courage? And I see, well, I didn't put much time to this one. Oh, you know, I better do a better job on that one tomorrow. I don't know if that's the right, a healthy perspective. What I would maybe commend instead is something like the following, person by person, as much as one can, an accurate self-assessment. Think about oneself and how one's moral life and try and pick out maybe one or two areas where you think you need to grow the most. You know, maybe some other areas you think you're, you're doing pretty well, and you can set them to the side as an area of conscious focus. But there are other areas where I say, oh, no, here, I have not been very honest to my spouse recently. Or I've really been focused so much on myself and have not been helping others in need recently. And maybe just isolate those areas and give a lot of conscious, deliberative focus to working on them. That's a great strategy. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you coming on The Good Life. Where can people learn more about your book and other writings and what you're up to? So, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I really enjoyed our time together and our conversation. They can go in a couple of different directions. So, if you're interested in the book itself, it's on the usual places like Amazon, currently out in paperback too. So, it's really inexpensive at the moment. If you're wanting to just see what we're doing here at my University of Wake Forest and some of my other research, you can follow me on social media. I'm at Character Gap, one word, Character Gap, on Twitter and Facebook. I also have a website, which Google can take you to right away. And if anyone's really interested in carrying out the conversation one-on-one, feel free to send me an email. I probably can't promise a response the same day, but in the next two or three days, I can usually get back to, to any questions that might come up about character. So I welcome, welcome future interaction. Well, thanks for being on The Good Life. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.